Before we begin to look at the individual stanzas of Psalm 119, I want to talk about some general characteristics of the psalm. And there are two of those characteristics, I think, that we're all familiar with. One of those characteristics, of course, is that it is a psalm about the law of God. Almost every verse, and there are only one or two exceptions, mentions one of the eight or nine synonyms for the law that are found in this psalm. Testimonies, commandments, word, and here actually there are two Hebrew words behind that English translation word. We might translate them as word and saying or word and speech. Then you have also precepts, statutes, judgments, law, ordinances, and uh, less frequently occurring the word way or ways. Those are the, the synonyms for the law that you find in here. I'm not going to talk about the differences in meaning between those synonyms now. We may be able to get into that later on as we continue our study. Uh, the psalm then meditates on the law of God in a variety of ways. There is praise for the law. There, is, uh, uh, there are expressions of love for the law and delight in the law. There's longing for obedience to the law. There's a desire for understanding the law. Uh, there are descriptions of the law in its, uh, the character of the law, such as it's uh, everlasting, it's complete and perfect, that sort of thing. Uh, in fact, the psalm deals with the law of the Lord in all of its different bearings on our life. So that's the, the first and most obvious and most important, actually, characteristic of the psalm. The second characteristic is that this is an acrostic or alphabetic psalm. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters. And there are 22 stanzas in the psalm, each of them uh, containing eight verses. And within those eight verses, every verse begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So in stanza one, every verse begins with the letter Aleph. In stanza two, every letter begins with the letter, every stanza begins with the letter Baith. Now, this acrostic or alphabetic structure of the psalm is not at all uncommon. I can mention to you a couple of uh, less well-known uh, acrostic psalms. First of all, they're Psalms 9 and 10. Uh, they're treated as separate psalms in our Psalter, but the two psalms together actually make up an acrostic and are considered by some to be one whole psalm because of that fact. There's also Psalm 37. It's not very obviously an acrostic because it has more than uh, 22 verses, 40 verses in fact, but there is an alphabetic structure to that psalm as well. Uh, besides this psalm, Psalm 119, there's also one more very extensive and very elaborate poetic uh, uh, alphabetic uh, psalm or, or alphabetic book in the Old Testament scriptures, and that's the book of Lamentations. 
in Lamentations chapters 1 and 2 and 4 all follow the same basic pattern. There are 22 verses, one for each letter in the Hebrew alphabet, and each verse in those three chapters begins with a succeeding letter of the alphabet. Chapter 5 also has 22 verses and begins alphabetically, but the acrostic breaks down in the later part of the chapter, and some think that the reason for this is uh, to reflect the uh, broken character of Zion and the temple in Jerusalem after Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed them and taken the people captive. Chapter 3 is different than the rest of the chapters in that it has 66 verses and each letter has three verses, three, uh, verses beginning with it. So um, those are some uh, other examples of acrostic or alphabetic psalms, but this is the longest and the most um, uh, precise and symmetrical uh, acrostic psalm or acrostic passage in the whole of the Old Testament scriptures. It's very elaborate, but it's also very carefully constructed, as we've already seen. 22 stanzas, 8 lines, in, 8 verses in each stanza, and pretty much also just 2 lines per verse. And this probably is meant to reflect the perfection and completeness of God's law. Now this acrostic structure, I think, could never be duplicated in an English translation. You couldn't, I think, maintain a satisfactory measure of faithfulness to the Hebrew text and do the uh, acrostic sort of dealing or alphabetic sort of uh, dealing with each section that you find in the Hebrew but it is possible to duplicate it to a certain extent in certain stanzas without too much difficulty, actually. And to give us a kind of sense of how this acrostic structure sounds, I've uh, given, a, I have here a translation of three different stanzas of the psalm, which, uh, in which each of the verses begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet, or the same letter of the English alphabet, though it doesn't necessarily correspond to the uh, Hebrew letter. So in uh, the second uh, stanza of the psalm, stanza Baith, verses 9 to 16, every um, verse begins with the Hebrew letter Baith, and uh, it's relatively easy to translate that uh, stanza using I as the first letter of every verse. Here is what I have come up with, beginning with verse 9. In what way will a young man make his path clean? By guarding it according to your word. I have sought you with all my heart. Let me not stray from your commandments. In my heart I have hidden your saying, so that I will not sin against you. Indeed, blessed are you, Yahweh, teach me your statutes. I have recounted with my lips all the judgments of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, I have rejoiced as in all wealth. In your precepts, I will meditate and I will regard your path. 
In your statutes I will delight myself. I will not forget your word. So that's one example, and you see every verse begins with the letter I, not the letter B, which is the letter for Hebrew, but nevertheless every verse begins with the same letter. We can do the same very easily, I think, with the um, stanza Hey, verses 33 to 40. In this stanza in the Hebrew, every verse except the last begins with a particular form of the Hebrew verb, what's called the hyphial form. And that hyphial form of the Hebrew verb expresses causation. So, for example, if you uh, take the uh, word learn, and in Hebrew you put that word learn into the hyphial form, then the verb means cause to learn. Or if you take the word understand, and you put it in the hyphial form in the Hebrew, then the word means cause to understand. And so, because each of these verses except the last begins with that causative form, we can use the English word cause in those first seven verses and thus have each of the verses starting with the letter C and we can do the same for verse 40 using a different word. So here we go. Cause me to learn Yahweh the way of your statutes and I will keep it to the end. Cause me to understand and I will keep your law, and I will observe it with all my heart. Cause me to tread in the path of your commandments, for in it I delight. Cause my heart to incline to your testimonies, and not to covetousness. Cause my eyes to turn away from seeing vanity. In your way revive me. Cause your speech to stand for your servant, who is for your fear. Cause to turn away my reproach, which I dread, for your judgments are good. And then verse 40, using a different word, Certainly, I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, revive me. Another one that's very easy to uh, translate uh, using this um, acrostic method, then, is the very next stanza, above or wow, verses 41 to 48. In the Hebrew, every one of these verses begins with the Hebrew conjunction that is usually translated as and. And so we can just translate every verse beginning with the word and. So starting at verse 41, And let your loving kindnesses come to me, Yahweh, your salvation according to your saying. And I will answer with a word the one who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. And you shall not completely snatch away from my mouth the word of truth, for in your judgments I hope. And I will observe your law continually forever and ever. And I will walk in a broad place for your precepts I seek. And I will speak about your testimonies before kings, and I will not be ashamed. And I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love, and I will lift up my palms to your commandments, which I love, and I will meditate on your statutes. So I think that gives you a kind of feel for how the Hebrew sounds, the Hebrew itself sounds in 
this uh, alphabetic song. So those are the two main characteristics, the two characteristics that we all know about, I think. But what I want to do now is look at some characteristics of the sound that are somewhat less obvious than those two. And the first and most important, I think most important of those characteristics is that this psalm, after verses 1 to 3, is all prayer. Every verse after verses 1 to 3 is addressed directly to God. The psalmist talks about the law, but he always is talking to God about that law. So he always says, your word, your testimonies, your commandments, your precepts, and so on. He's always addressing God. Now, it's not always petitionary prayer. He engages in much more than petition in this psalm. He praises the law. Your testimonies are wonderful. He expresses his love for the law. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. He promises to keep the law. I will keep your testimonies or your statutes. So you get these different ways of talking about the law and the different kinds of, of uh, things that he says, but it's all addressed to God. The second thing that we should notice about this song is that the prayer is personal, very personal. He never speaks in the first person plural in this prayer, as we do, for example, in the Lord's Prayer, give us this day our daily bread. He always speaks in the first person singular. He speaks of I and me and my throughout. So you can see this uh, just illustrated for a moment in uh, the first stanza, the last four verses. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes, then I would not be ashamed when I look into all your commandments. I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. So it's a very personal prayer. It's a, a prayer in the first person singular that the psalmist is praying to God, and he gives us the privilege then of listening in to his, this prayer which he is making to his God. A third characteristic closely associated then with those first two characteristics is that not only is this a personal prayer, but it's a personal prayer that very much arises out of the circumstances of the psalmist's life. This is not a, a prayer written in the uh, isolation of his study. and It's not an ivory tower kind of prayer, but it's a prayer that rises out of the circumstances, and especially the circumstances of trouble that the psalmist is experiencing. And not only circumstances of trouble, but especially the opposition of enemies. And so you find the psalmist, beginning in stanza 3, talking in most of the rest of the psalm about his enemies as well. As he addresses this prayer to God, he's praying about his enemies to God. His enemies are uh, seeking his life. His enemies are causing him trouble. His enemies are tempting him away from the path of God's commandments. His enemies are obstructing his obedience to the commandments. His enemies are there present in his life and 
causing him difficulties and difficulties in his walk with God, in his walk of obedience to the commandments. But he then finds in the law of God a comfort, a help, and a guide in this trouble which his enemies are causing him. Let's just take a couple of examples from the early part of the psalm. Uh, Verse 23 first. Princes also sit and speak against me, but your servant meditates on your statutes. Or if you want to go on to verse 42, so shall I have an answer for him who reproaches me, for I trust in your word. Or verse 51, the proud have me in great derision, yet I do not turn aside from your law. Then those are just a few examples among many. So those are three important characteristics in addition to the two we're all familiar with. The five characteristics that we've talked about then are is that the psalm is about the law, that it's an alphabetic psalm, that it's prayer, that it's personal prayer, and that it's personal prayer arising out of circumstances of trouble, circumstances of opposition from the psalmist's enemies. Now the next thing we should talk about is uh, some of the uh, main ideas which are expressed again and again in the psalm, what we would can call themes in the psalm, because they appear over and over again, using different words, but nevertheless, um, this kind of repetition of idea, even if not repetition of words, is something that's very common in the psalm. And I picked out six of these themes. You might be able to find a couple more than this if you um, look at this yourself, but I think these are the the ones that stand out mostly. Uh, The first is a rejoicing in the law of God and a love for the law of God and a delight in the law of God. This comes up over and over again, probably more frequently than any other idea. Let's just look at a couple of examples. Verse 14 first. I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies as much as in all riches. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Or verse 20, my soul breaks with longing for your judgments at all times. So that's one thing, rejoicing and delighting and loving the law of God. A second theme is prayers for understanding of the law. There's one prayer, in fact, which occurs at least six times in the very same words throughout the psalm. And that's the prayer, teach me your statutes. The first time you find it is in verse 12. Blessed are you, O Lord, teach me your statutes. But you find it again in verses 26, 64, 68, 124, and 135. And then the same general idea is expressed in different ways in other verses. Look at verse 18, for example. Open my eyes, that I may see wondrous things from your law. Or verse 27. Make me understand the way of your precepts, so shall I meditate on your wonderful works. So that's a second theme. Prayers for understanding. 
A third theme, and this one quite striking in this context, is prayers for reviving, or as the King James Version has it, for quickening, or for making alive. He asks to be made alive again. Many times throughout this psalm, Again, let's look at some examples. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Verse 25, my soul clings to the dust. Revive me or make me live according to your word. And verse 37, turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things and revive me in your way. So that's the third theme. A fourth theme is the theme of either remembering or not forgetting God's law. Verse 16, I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. Or verse 52, verse 52, I remembered your judgments of old, O Lord, and have comforted myself. And verse 61, the cords of the wicked have bound me, but I have not forgotten your law. Now, two more characteristics besides those four yet. One is that the psalmist uh, frequently in this psalm reflects on his life in the past. And in reflecting on his life in the past, he is not especially reminded of his sins. There is uh, in the uh, reference to sin in this psalm, occasional reference to sin in this psalm, and we might say that the whole topic of sin uh, stands somewhat in the background of the psalm, but there are not many references, direct references to his sin. Instead, what you find more, much more frequent references to is his keeping of the law. He talks to God, he prays to God about how he has kept his law. Look at verses 10 and 11. With my whole heart I have sought you. Oh, let me not wander from your commandments. Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. And verse 13 in that same stanza, with my lips I have declared all the judgments of your mouth. So he's reflecting on his past life and he's talking about how in the past he has lived according to God's law. And then the other side of that coin is that he also looks frequently to the future. And as he looks to the future, he uh, makes promises to the Lord about continuing to keep his law. Verses 7 and 8, I will praise you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not forsake me utterly. And again in verses 15 and 16 of the second stanza, I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So those six themes, I think, are very prominent in the psalm. Rejoicing in, delighting in, loving the law of God, praying for understanding of the law, praying for God to revive him according to the law, remembering and not forgetting the law, keeping the law in the past, and promising to keep the law in the future. Now there's a big question that arises in connection with these main ideas, and that question is, 
does each stanza of the psalm have one main idea that you can summarize, perhaps in one sentence? There are some commentators who basically say about this, no, that's not the case. Matthew Henry, for example, uh, talks about this the verses of this psalm as a string of beautiful pearls. They're, they're wonderful pearls. They're glorious pearls. They're pearls of great price, if you will. But these pearls, uh, the verses of the psalm, don't have much more relation to each other than the pearls that are found on a necklace. They're next to each other, but that's pretty much all you can say about them. So Henry's one of those who doesn't look for, really for connections. You know, he would recognize, and all of these commentators would recognize that there are certain exceptions to this, as for example in verses 1 and 2, Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with the whole heart. They would see, of course, a connection there. But in general, they would say that the psalm is driven not by uh, logic, but is driven by this um, need to adhere to the alphabetic structure that has been determined from uh, the beginning that... Uh, um, is uh, the driving force behind the psalm. You have to have so many uh, verses that all begin with this letter and you um, express whatever ideas then come to you related to uh, a word that uh, fits into that scheme, that sort of approach. But then there are others who say, no, that's not the case. And we need to look for a main idea. We need to be able to say that these verses are, are, a structure, are structured in such a way that there's logic to them, that we can point out a main idea in each of the stanzas. So if you look at uh, Charles Spurgeon's uh, The Golden Alphabet, a commentary on this psalm that he wrote, uh, he writes one chapter on each of the stanzas of the psalm, and at the beginning of each chapter, he tries to capture the main idea of the stanza in just a few words. Or you can look at uh, G. Campbell Morgan's book, Notes on the Psalms, and in Psalm 119, he has two or three paragraphs about each of the stanzas, and in those two or three paragraphs, he tries to, again, capture the main idea of the psalm and explain how the verses, all the verses of the of this, uh, stanza fit into or uh, connect to that main idea. And I prefer myself to think that this is the way we ought to treat the psalm, that each of the stanzas does have a central idea and everything else then is that the stanza says is related to that central idea. And so I've um, put together a sheet here uh, where I've tried to capture that main idea of each of the stanzas and express it also as prayer. Since this is a psalm of prayer, I think we have to express that main idea then of each stanza as prayer.
So stanza one's main idea is, I long to be blessed through keeping your commandments. The second stanza, bathe, I will cleanse my way by taking heed according to your word. Gimel, the third stanza, deal bountifully with me so that I, in reproach and contempt, this is the first stanza where he talks about his enemies, in reproach and contempt may live and keep your word. Dalith, I will run the course of your commandments, for you will enlarge my heart. Hey, give me understanding, and I will keep your law. Vav, or wow, by your loving kindness, I will observe your law. Zion, your life-giving word is my comfort in affliction. Chaith, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will turn my feet to your testimonies. Taith, affliction is for my profit, so that I may learn to keep your word. Yot, let those who fear you turn to me to know your testimonies. Kaf, my eyes fail from your word because of my persecutors. Lamed, your faithful word is the foundation of my faith. Mem, I love your commandments because they make me wiser than my enemies and my teachers. None, your word is a lamp to my feet. Samek, I hope in your word in spite of evildoers. Ayan, it is time for the Lord to work because my enemies have made void your law. Pay, your testimonies are wonderful. Tzadi, your testimonies are righteous and faithful. Kof, hear me and save me and I will observe your testimonies. Resh, revive me according to your judgments. Shin, I have kept your precepts and your testimonies. And Tao, let your ordinances help me by giving understanding, deliverance, and power to praise. Now, it's not very easy, really, to uh, pick out the main ideas of these stanzas. And this list that I've just uh, given you is a list that will probably be modified as we work our way through the individual stanzas. Uh, the co other commentators are not would not agree with me and would not agree among themselves either about necessarily about the main ideas. This is a, a, a difficult exercise because it's not ordinary logic, logical development that you find in these stanzas, not in, in English. Uh, standards in Western civilization type of standards anyway. And then there's one more thing that we want to uh, talk about here, and that is um, the structure of the psalm as a whole. I found an article on the internet by a man named Marcus Nodder, N-O-D-D-E-R, called The Relationship Between the Stanzas of Psalm 119. That article is found at www.theologian.org.uk. And he discerns a chiastic structure in the psalm. And a chiastic structure, as you may know, is a kind of pyramidal structure or a, a mirror kind of structure where the second half of the psalm kind of of the passage kind of mirrors the uh, first half. And here's how he divides it then. 
Stanzas 1 and 2 are introductory and relate to the last two stanzas, or correspond with the last two stanzas, 21 and 22. And here's how he summarizes stanzas 1 and 2. The psalmist affirms the blessing of going the way of the law of the Lord and his joyful commitment to this path while recognizing his need of the Lord's help. And then he summarizes stanzas 21 and 22 in this way. The persecutors are still there. The prayers for rescue are still being offered. The psalmist's love for the law and his commitment to it are still being affirmed. But at the heart is the distinctive note of praise. So he says there's, the focus of those last two stanzas is praise. Then he makes stanzas, he sees stanzas 3 to 10, the next eight stanzas in the psalm, as corresponding with the eight stanzas that precede 21 and 22, stanzas 13 to 20. And we'll get to what he, how he summarizes those in a moment, but he sees then the central two stanzas, stanzas 11 and 12, as the kind of pivot on which the psalm turns, the center of the psalm in which you find a very distinct and very strong turning point in the psalm. So here's how he summarizes stanza 11. The psalmist's frustration and perplexity, we'll come back to that in a moment, come to a head in stanza 11, the bleakest and most anguished of all the stanzas. And I think, by the way, that that's a good description of stanza 11. It's uh, the stanza uh, entitled Kaf in the psalm, verses 81 to 88. And then stanza 12, very different in character. The answer to his distress comes in stanza 12 as he turns his thoughts to the eternal nature of the Lord, his word, and his faithfulness. Now, if you just look at those stanzas a minute, Let's begin with Kaf, uh, verses 81 to 88. Notice how he talks about his enemies and how he talks about the effect of his enemies on his life. Verse 83, for example, I have become like a wineskin in smoke, yet I do not forget your statutes. How many are the days of your servant? When will you execute judgment on those who persecute me? The proud have dug pits for me, which is not according to your law. They persecute me wrongfully. Help me. But then in verse uh, 89, you have a very different uh, kind of language, uh, a dramatic change from verse 11, an emphasis on the permanent character of the Lord's word. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You established the earth and it abides. They continue this day according to your ordinances, for all are your servants. Unless your law had been my delight, I would then have perished in my affliction. So the turning point is stanza 12, right at the center of the psalm, and after that worst, um, most anguished stanza in the psalm. And then stanzas 3 to 10 prior to this, that's the verses, of course, from uh, 17 to um, 80, 
those uh, eight stanzas are about his enemies and about the trouble he's having with his enemies and about the uh, uh, perplexity uh, this causes him. The suffering, uh, Nader says, creates a tension in the psalm. On the one hand, the Lord has promised blessing to those who walk in his ways. On the other, the psalmist's experience is one of suffering in spite of the fact that he delights in the law of the Lord and remains committed to obeying it. So the Lord promises blessing to those who walk in his ways. The psalmist walks in his ways, but he doesn't experience blessing. He experiences suffering instead, and this causes him great difficulty. But the resolution comes in stanza 12 and in stanzas 13 to 20. And notice how he describes this resolution. Circumstances remain unchanged, and the psalmist renews his prayers for deliverance. But the utter despair and perplexity of stanza 11 has been left behind. Although he does not understand why the Lord fails to intervene to deliver him and overthrow his enemies, stanza 12 has been a turning point and has reassured him that his trust and hope are well-placed, being in the eternal Lord. The word forever occurs only two times in stanza, stanzas 1 to 11, but seven times after stanza 12. This points to an eschatological resolution to the tension, that is, a resolution to the tension in the glory and blessedness of heaven. So and that's a, a suggestion about the overall structure of the psalm that's worth uh, taking into account as we consider this psalm together in the weeks to come. Now there's a couple more things that I want to say by way of conclusion. First of all, as we're studying this psalm, we have to see Christ in it. If we don't see Christ in this psalm, we will not have a proper understanding of it. He is the one who is praying these words. He is the one, for example, who is expressing his love for God's law, for the law of his Father in heaven. I come to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. He is the one who is praying for obedience and for instruction in the law. He prayed for obedience in the Garden of Gethsemane. Not my will, but your will be done. And he learned obedience, Hebrews 5 says, by the things which he suffered. His uh, obedience to the law, then, was not an easy thing. We maybe sometimes tend to imagine that it was easy because he couldn't sin. But it wasn't. It was difficult for him. He was tempted in all points like as we are, though without sin. And you can see the difficulty of obedience that he experienced when you listen again to that prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane as he sweat, as it were, great drops of blood. Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. He is the one 
who is saying in many places throughout this psalm, I have observed your law with all my heart. And it's only because this is his prayer first that we can also make it our prayer. We could never say by ourselves, I love your law. By nature, we hate the law. We could never pray by ourselves for obedience to the law. We don't want obedience to the law. We want to rebel. We want to be in disobedience. We could never say, I have observed your law with my whole heart. We simply do not do that. It's only in Christ that these things become possible for us. And so we have to see Christ in here. And we have to see ourselves as being in Christ when we make this prayer our own. And that brings me to another point that's very important here, and that is that we tend, I think, to see law and gospel as being in opposition to each other. And in a certain sense, that's true. Paul expresses this opposition when he says that we are not justified by works of the law, but we are justified by grace. We can't look at this psalm then and interpret this psalm as saying, at least in some verses, our justification or our salvation come to us in the way of works, the works of the law. That's not what the psalm is saying. The psalm is rooted firmly in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As we said, this is the, a psalm of Christ himself first. But when we talk about this, what we have to understand then is that when Christ does his saving work, he's first of all redeeming us from the curse of the law under which we have fallen because of our sins. And then he's sanctifying us, that is bringing us back into conformity to the law so that we can join him in this prayer and say right along with him everything that he says in this prayer. But there's this also about that. When the psalmist here talks about the law, I don't think we should think just about the moral law, that is, the Ten Commandments. When the Old Testament saints talked about the law, they meant the whole law what we have divided up into the moral, the civil, and the ceremonial laws. And when the psalmist talks about loving the law, or when he talks about obeying the law, he's talking about not only about obeying the Ten Commandments, but he's talking about observing the various ceremonies required by the law. He's talking about loving those ceremonies. He's talking about loving the feast days, and loving the new moons, and loving the Sabbath days, and loving the laws about cleansings from leprosy, for example, and all those other laws, the, what we would call the civil law, also the laws about putting a fence around the roof of your house, or a, a, a wall, or a parapet around the roof of your house, or not plowing with an ox and a donkey together. All those 
laws are part of what the psalmist is talking about here when he says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And when you think of it in that, those terms, then you see, too, how Christ comes into that law again. Because, especially in the ceremonies of the law, Christ was foreshadowed for them in the sacrifices and in the cleansings and in all those laws having to do with the temple and the priesthood and everything else. Christ was foreshadowed for them. And so when the psalmist talks about loving the law of God, he's talking about loving Christ as portrayed in that law, as foreshadowed in that law. And when Paul says in um, Galatians, that the law was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. He doesn't mean just that the law was uh, a means by which they knew their sin and their need of Christ, but he means also that the law showed them Christ, showed them, as it were, pictures of Christ in the lamb and in the blood and in the incense and in the priesthood and in all these other things. The law showed them Christ and was a schoolmaster to bring them to Christ exactly because it did show them Christ. And so the psalmist is talking about Christ and about loving Christ and about seeking Christ when he talks about obeying the law. He's uh, looking for salvation from death and from sin in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's looking for obedience to the law in Christ. And so what we have to understand, people of God, is that in Christ, our Savior, is the fulfillment of the law for us. First of all, he fulfilled the moral law, that is, he obeyed every commandment. He was the perfect and spotless Lamb of God, who was able, because he had no sin of his own, to offer himself as a sacrifice for our sins. But also, he fulfilled all the ceremonies of the law. He is the Lamb of God. He is the High Priest. He is the altar. He is the temple. He is the uh, mercy of God. He is the uh, dwelling place of God, the one uh, in whom the dwelling place of God is established. He is at the heart of the whole of the law, and we have to find Christ in this uh, psalm, or we will not understand it at all. Thank you. Thank you.